This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. What the Burinovsky babushki, what they were very good at doing was they played to the Eurovision sort of style, which is they took ethnic music, they took the sort of folk aspect, but made an electronic beat. And this is the thing, all of these are basically whatever stereotype you have of European culture, this is clearly one of them. And so it's these old ladies doing folk music over techno beat. It's exactly what it sounds like. Hi, and welcome to the Eurasian Enigma, the podcast of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. My name is Chris Martin. I'm the Outreach Director, and I'm here today with James Evans, a staff member at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard, and Dr. Yuval Weber, who is a visiting scholar at the Davis Center and an assistant professor of world economy and international affairs at the National Research University Higher School of Economics in Moscow. And we're here today to talk about Eurovision. And let's start with you, James, for somebody who is uninitiated in the pastime that is the Eurovision Song Contest. What exactly is it? So Eurovision is a pan-European singing contest, and it's 62 years old. It's actually the world's longest-running singing contest. It's founded in 1956 by the European Broadcasting Union, which is a conglomerate of all of the national public broadcasters across Europe, so the BBC in the UK, RTE in Ireland, um, etc. Uh, and it's based off a singing contest in Italy called the San Remo Festival. And so every country in Europe submits an act, everybody sings, and then everyone in Europe votes for their favourite. Um, so it was originally quite small, it was about six members, and over the years as more members have added, uh, it's just grown in popularity and size, and it's been responsible for the launch of some really big names, so American listeners will be familiar with people like ABBA, Celine Dion, and Riverdance. They all had their international break because of Eurovision. So to put in perspective, you know, in America you have something like the Super Bowl, a big spectacle. Eurovision has over double the number of viewers of the Super Bowl, so between 100 and 600 million, depending on how you count. And it's a huge party across the whole of Europe, everybody watches, and as you can assume from having everyone in Europe involved, it gets really political. But there was a real foundational mission to Eurovision. When it was created, it was created to achieve something, and politics was not meant to play a part in that. Can you talk about sort of why the people decided to develop this competition, what its goal was, it, again, just after the, the close of the Second World War? Sure. So uh, the European Broadcasting Union was founded just a few years before, but in the same year as the Council of Europe was founded. So it was all part of this post-war trend uh, towards European integration and making sure the continent didn't repeat the mistakes of the 40s. So in doing some research about the European Song Contest, I found out that initially the idea was not necessarily to foster integration explicitly. The idea was to produce content for this new medium of television uh, in a cheaper way by sharing costs across the countries. That said, the initial founding members were Switzerland, West Germany, France, very much the core of what we consider Western Europe. But as the competition expands over the 50s and 60s, you see countries like Spain and Portugal, Israel, Turkey joining. So it's not so much in the same trend as the European Union's development. It's more along the lines of NATO or this sort of post or uh, this Cold War division between a broader Western Europe that doesn't necessarily just focus on the democratic Europe. But there is a Cold War division because we're not seeing members of the Eastern Bloc or obviously the USSR competing during this time period, although those countries are now members of, of Eurovision uh, post the collapse of the Soviet Union. But there was an alternative. There was a basically a Soviet Bloc version mm -hmm. of Eurovision, which was called 
eventually called Intervision. Do you know anything about that, Yuval? Yes. So the Intervision started in 1977, but it grew from perhaps from a different song competition. In 1961, right about uh, one week after the Berlin Wall goes up, there was a guy in Poland named Władysław Spielmann, who is also perhaps well known to people. He is the pianist who is depicted by Adrian Brody in the movie The Pianist. Mm -hmm. He survives the Holocaust but sticks around in Poland after the war. And as it becomes clear that East and West has solidified into two different blocks, he has the idea to have a uh, song competition. He starts in uh, the city of Gdansk in the shipyards, uh, which comes back into the story later. So in 1961, he begins the song competition. In 1964, they move out to a forest right by the sea. And from 64 onwards, they have this essentially pan-Soviet bloc, pan-sort of, let's say, second world, third world type competition. And that goes on and becomes very popular across the world there. And one of the many reasons that it was popular is, as I was doing the research for this, there was one person who had a quote, uh, he was the Polish TV director of this, and he said, just because we lived in a communist country didn't mean that we didn't like sequins and singing songs, <laughs> which speaks to the universal appeal of sequins, I think. <laughs> But in 1977, they rebranded as Intervision in order to have this bigger, essentially much more explicitly political, but much more inclusive type competition. And one of the big things of having sort of a, a rebrand and more money going into it was the, the ability to invite international artists. So not only people from Central Europe, Eastern Europe, but of course, uh, Africa, Caribbean, Cuba, uh, etc. And... As I mentioned, the thing began in 1961 in the Gdansk uh, shipyards. In 1980, the actual beginning of the solidarity protests happens to coincide with this competition, that as there is more international attention to Poland and Gdansk, that's when essentially the, uh, the trouble kicks off. Mm -hmm. The 1980 Intervision competition was the last one as Intervision. It then goes back to sort of its original incarnation. And by 1981, there's martial law in Poland itself. So the amount of cultural space for singing, dancing, and sequins has been uh, was quite reduced right. by that point onwards. Yeah. But if we fast forward to 1991, uh, the early 1990s, the collapse of the USSR, we begin to see the countries of Eastern Europe making passage into the Eurovision Song Contest, and it does something to the competition. It, uh, what would you say that the Eastern Europeans brought have brought to to Eurovision, James? Well, a lot of people think that having Eastern Europe join has actually really reinvigorated the contest. And so, obviously, you know, the end of the 1980s, the early 1990s was a huge time of change for Europe. And it, having these countries join the European Broadcasting Union and therefore Eurovision really means that the European uh, Eurovision Song Contest mirrors what's going on in Europe quite well. So suddenly, by expanding the contest to a lot of the former Soviet bloc, there's this real questioning of what it means to be Europe. You know, you have ideas about this new Europe that are not just the former Soviet countries, but also by entering what was Western Europe, it really changes the whole. And so you end up in this sort of weird influx stage where no one is quite sure what's happening but the Eastern European countries are really keen on broadcasting themselves as nations that have not been nations for quite some time. So in 1994, for example, Poland uh, comes second in the contest, and it's this real sort of coming out party for a lot of these countries, which given some of the very camp overtones of Eurovision, I think is quite an appropriate metaphor. Mm -hmm. And in particular, after sort of some years uh, in the early 2000s is when 
Eastern Europe really finds its groove in Eurovision. So from 2000 to 2008, Eurovision is exclusively won by either Eastern or Southern European countries. And so from 2001, when Estonia wins, it's kind of this big wake-up call to a lot of Western European countries who have been quite used to you know, winning and suddenly realising they have to compete a little bit harder. And this really comes to a head when Serbia wins the contest in 2007 with Maria Serafovic. Why, why the switch? Why do you think there is this switch towards more winners coming in Eastern Europe in the, the 2000s? Is it because of the time and energy that they put into finding acts compared to Western Europe? Is it something about the voting mechanism, about who wins? How do you hypothesize why this shift well, the traditional view is uh, it's all about block voting. So all of these Eastern European countries, are they're quite small, but everyone gets the same amount of votes. So all these neighbours are voting for each other, and that's why they get more votes. And you can't vote for yourself. You can't vote for yourself. Right, you can't yes. vote for your own country. You can only vote yeah. for other countries. That is part of it. But block voting's existed throughout the entire history of Eurovision. You know, France and Belgium voting for each other, the UK and Ireland. Um, so it's not a new phenomenon. And um, what I think is actually more important is that for an Eastern European country, like I said, this is an international platform for them to shine as a state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same as being in the World Cup or the Olympics or any other big international contest. Like This is a chance for a nation to showcase itself not only internationally, but also to itself as a nation. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of literature, for example, on how Olympic opening ceremonies do this. It's as much for the domestic audience as it is for an international audience. Mm-hmm. And so Eastern European countries bring capital, new ideas, and actually change the styles of music that are becoming popular. So Eurovision is not known for being particularly contemporary in its music styles. Um, you still see DJs sort of rapping on stage, which is about 30 years old in the real world. But people talk about this return to sort of a folk ethnicity. And because there are no longer rules that you have to sing in your national language, a lot of songs are in English. Um, and so there's this strange combination of popular music that's in English that we would associate with the British American tradition meets this sort of strange pseudo-ethnic national singing you see it a lot in opening ceremonies when it's being hosted in Eastern Europe so in Ukraine and Azerbaijan there's a lot of traditional folk dancing meets contemporary dance or music so in many ways Eastern Europe has really changed the European Song Contest and one of the more recent entries from Russia were the Boranovsky and Babushki who were entered I think in 2012 it's a group of older Russian grandmothers uh, seemingly and they sang sort of a discified version of a sort of a traditional folk song. You've all, what do the Russians make of an entry like that? Obviously, that the women are charming. They're very adorable. They do speak to the traditional culture. They have been, like I said, uh, the song was called, I think, uh, Party for Everybody, Party for Everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely an updated version. But uh, what do the Russians make of that? And, wh- and what do the Russians or the other Eastern Europeans mm-hmm. What do they see as the uh, the upside from this participation? So the, the general question is, what, what are the Eastern European or sort of like post-Soviet states doing? Uh, and as James was talking about a moment ago, it's sort of about uh, identifying themselves to the outside world. And in, in a larger sense, there's three big issues when it comes to what does the shift of, you know, uh, the center of power, the center of attention uh, towards the East. The first one is for these newer countries. It is PR, or just public relations branding, to other Europeans that they're also Europeans. When they participate in 
a competition like Eurovision or European Cup, what have you, or the European Championships for soccer, it demonstrates that they're in the same group. Uh, and for a country which is trying to articulate its sovereignty and may not have too many chances, like a small country like Armenia, what would anyone know about Armenia? Uh, Azerbaijan, great example. You know, contemporary Europeans might know they sponsored a shirt for Atletico Madrid, like, you know, one of the popular soccer teams. But otherwise, what would you hear of Azerbaijan? So this is really a moment to essentially advertise oneself. And so it's not just advertising oneself just in terms of PR, but it's also a version of oneself. It's very highly choreograph mm -hmm. what is the version of us that foreigners will see similarly what is the version of us that we will demonstrate to ourselves probably the final thing is demonstrating the international relevance we do well at the eurovision therefore take us seriously and when it came to these uh charmingly dressed older ladies from uh, central russia it was definitely an opportunity to say that we have a traditional culture here in russia you may know lots of things about let's say President Putin or oil or all these stereotypes about us, but you don't know much about our ethnic culture. And so what the uh, Burinovsky, uh, Babushki, what they were very good at doing was they played to the Eurovision sort of style, which is they took ethnic music, they took the sort of folk aspect, but made uh, an electronic beat. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing, again, for, for those listeners who have not seen uh, any of these videos or performances or heard these songs all of these are basically whatever stereotype you have of european culture this is clearly one of them mm -hmm. and so it's these old ladies doing folk music over yeah. techno beat and they're baking and they're baking during yes. the performance they're baking the as well and the, the end, end of, of the performance, performance. yeah it, it's exactly what it sounds like there's <laughs> we're describing it uh very straight here and that was essentially the big reason why it was popular in Europe as well as in Russia because it says we have something of ours that's you know we're pretty proud of we also know what European standards are and we're showing ourselves off in a way that makes sort of everyone better off is this more problematic now for President Putin whereas Russia straddles this line about whether they are European or whether they are Asian whether they are something wholly unique to themselves does turning to the West in this way and participating in this very Western contest what does it mean for them how is it being used as propaganda at home and abroad as they're sort of having this unique maybe not unique but this moment when they are re-examining exactly where they fit as a nation for President Putin and sort of the, the people around him, Eurovision is good when Russia does well. Mm. But if things are not going well, then they're not going to participate. And I can tell you, just sort of a personal aside here, when uh, Conchita Wurst won in 2014, for those listeners who don't know, Conchita Wurst is Austrian drag queen, beautiful lady, but with like a full beard. But the day after the competition, I just happened to get my hair cut. And the ladies in the haircutting salon could not stop talking about this. This, and was, this is in Moscow. You're this in, is Moscow in Moscow at the time. Yeah, right. so I'm yeah. in Moscow at the time. I'm getting my hair cut. This is a very exciting thing. The TV is going nonstop about the decadence of Europe. Europe is a terrible place. And the one of the women goes to me, uh, so in, in Russian, Tokova. So in the sense of, have you ever seen a woman like him? Like him. Mm -hmm. And because I, so they could hear that I was uh, speaking Russian, but with an American accent. And I said, yeah, in fact, I'm from the United States and I've been to what are called drag shows in the United States. And I've didn't know Conchita verse, but 
I know the general thing. The women in the barbershop then became so much more excited and interested in just talking about this because it was something that was clearly outside the norms of what they would expect to see on television, but they were intrigued by it. And this was when I could tell that the, the TV had started to decry Europe Decadence of Europe, politicians had talked about that, but it hadn't filtered down sufficiently to the popular level. And so these women were still excited to hear, what is it like when you see a bunch of men uh, dressing in dresses and singing uh, singing flamboyant songs? And I said, you know, fairly entertaining if you like that sort of entertainment. And if you like Eurovision, I'm going to guess you like that sort of entertainment. Right. Well, that that's one of my other questions was that this competition is, as you said, it's flamboyant, it's glam, it has a, a large following amongst the gay community, and that is fairly in opposition with the traditional values culture that is being recultivated in, in Russia mm. right now, as you saw in that salon. So, so certainly, I... So I lived in Moscow from 2012 to 2016, and I'd say when I got there, it was not like a pro-gay rights sort of place, but perhaps what may have been in the United States like 50s, 60s, 70s. Gay people exist, maybe not much of an issue, but it's certainly not violent homophobia that's on TV and sort of in the streets. But once the break with Europe came, Conchita Verst was political manna from heaven in this context in order to distinguish who are we as Russians, how are we different from Europeans, Conchita Verst. That's, that's what makes the us definition. different. That's what makes us special. In Western Europe, this is a gay thing. Here, this is about our national culture. Their pain EU culture, all decadent, all gay, not us. But because it's something that all Europeans do, we have to take it seriously as Europeans. Especially if we can win. Especially if we can win. Right. And this competition was not ever meant to be political, but it was political very quickly, and even more so, especially in terms of the fracture in Russian-Ukrainian relations. James, maybe you could talk a little bit about what happened, for those who don't know, over the last few years that resulted in Russia not participating in Eurovision this year. Since Russia joined Eurovision in the 90s, they've actually had a pretty good run of Eurovision. Um, and as you've all mentioned, they've taken it quite seriously. They uh, won with Dima Bilan, who is a very famous Russian uh, pop star. And the year before last, it came to a head when Ukraine, who had previously actually spent a few years sort of sitting on the sidelines because of uh, events in the Crimea, came back with a song by a singer called Jamala, which is a pseudonym for a singer of Crimean Tatar descent. And she sung this song called 1944, which she claims is a song about her great-grandmother and the deportation of Crimean Tatars under Stalin. So one of the rules of Eurovision is that you are not allowed an explicitly political song. So the Republic of Georgia got banned a few years ago because they had a song called We Don't Want to Put In, which when sung sounds a bit like Putin. And they're quite strict on that. And so uh, it was very unusual that a song that on paper doesn't have any explicitly political lyrics, but anyone who knows anything about history knows that this is quite a political topic, was allowed. And actually, before this, I spent some time on some right-wing Russian uh, <laughs> versions of Reddit, and there were a lot of people saying, oh, this shows that there's a European double standard, because if this had come from Russia, they would have banned the song outright. But because it's poor Ukraine, and Europe loves Ukraine, therefore it was allowed. Um, so the claim is the song is historical, not political, which 
how anything can be historical <laughs> or not political is up for debate. But Jamala won, uh, and it meant that Ukraine hosted the contest in Kiev. So Russia was obviously not very happy about this. There were talks about them boycotting it. They decided to participate. The day that the uh, Russian act was due to be submitted, Russia submitted a singer called Yulia Samoyeva, who is a beautiful blonde woman in a wheelchair and has been in a wheelchair since childhood, who had previously performed in Crimea uh, after Russia had annexed it, and had therefore, in Ukrainian eyes, entered Ukraine legally and was barred from entering the country. And so there's debate about whether this was done on purpose by the, the Russian uh, Broadcasting Union, but it meant that Ukraine had to ban this entry, and after some back and forth about whether or not they could perform via live stream, Russia stomped their feet and said, no, we're not going to participate, and completely pulled out. So for the European Broadcasting Union, this is quite a big deal because a lot of advertising revenue comes from Russia. Now, even if Russia hadn't put up this woman to be their performer who had allegedly illegally entered Ukraine and, and had to be banned, would it have been too political for Russia to be sending their act to Ukraine? What do you think, Yuval? In a, in a sense, it was a king troll move because <laughs> there was no doubt that she had performed in Crimea in 2015 so that she had... Uh, by the views of the Ukrainian sort of border uh, enforcement, she had crossed over illegally into Ukraine and that she would be banned. So Russia knew that by nominating her as the official entrant that this issue would come up. There are plenty of pop stars in Russia, but she was the one who was chosen to bring this issue to a head. And basically they got a, a result in which she was not able to perform. And there was uh, several good news cycles about European double standards, uh, Ukrainian revanchism, all that sort of thing. One of the things of not having the you know, official broadcast of Eurovision in, in Russia this year was to, I think, to an extent, prohibit the viewing of what Ukraine is doing in terms of burnishing their soft power. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time for Thanks exploring for this very, very important topic of Eurovision. Uh, hopefully we've piqued everybody's interest at home. We should mention that we do keep show notes about each episode of our podcast on the Davis Center website, and we'll be sure to link up some of the performances that we've referenced today so that you have an easy way to find them if you haven't already Googled them while you were listening. So thanks again, gentlemen. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.